This Cap Times podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Learn more at exactsciences.com. Welcome to Cap Times Talks, a podcast bringing you smart conversations about big topics in the city of Madison. I'm Natalie Yar, producer of Cap Times Podcasts. Today, we're bringing you a one-on-one conversation with former U.S. Senator from Wisconsin, Russ Feingold. Cap Times Associate Editor John Nichols sat down with Feingold to discuss his current work on biodiversity, his stint as a U.S. envoy to Africa, his take on 2020 presidential politics, and much more. This free Cap Times talk was hosted at the First Unitarian Society on Sunday evening. Without further ado, here's John Nichols. Sanders sound like a kind of easy going charm. <laughs> 
era of the progressive movement. Your father, in fact, was a La Follette progressive, it's fair to say. Yeah, he ran on the progressive ticket for a district attorney in uh, Janesville. Lost. Like many of our candidates. Yeah, yeah but you know, he was raising the flag there in the 30s. He was a, a page in the state capitol for Philip La Follette. And uh, I was brought up, uh, not that I was just a Democrat, uh, and Jewish and a White Sox fan, but that I was a progressive
2011, you began, you wrote a book, uh, which was actually, again, a book that was very international in character. Not, not kind of looking back so much at your Senate time, but really a lot of, a lot of looking at the world. Uh, I think almost anybody would have thought, oh, Russ Michael's going to write a book about campaign finance. That's what he'll do, because he's, you know, he's the last name of that guy in McCain. And, <laughs> um, and, but you didn't. And why did you do that in 2011? Well, first of all, book publishers said, well, what would you like to write about? And you want to write about, about campaign finance reform. And to tell you the truth, at that point, it was just coming out of my ears. I'd been work doing this for eight years, nine years successfully, but then we had had the Citizens United decision. I thought, I didn't thought people had heard enough from me about campaign finance reform at that point. I thought something unique that I could talk about was what it was like to be a progressive, being in Washington on 9-11, and watching this country's response to that, both uh, internationally and domestically. I thought that would be something that maybe wasn't out there. Uh, in terms of mistakes I think we made in trying to understand what, the attack on 9-11 and the approach to it, uh, mistakes that were made with sort of a Cold War or, or looking at the past kind of approach, but also uh, the domestic uh, concerns I had uh, about what was done after 9-11, particularly the attack on civil liberties in the Patriot Act, uh, the Islamophobia uh, that was uh, being pushed by Fox News, and others, and so it was sort of my assessment, thinking that that might be of some use going forward. And, and I'm talking about campaign finance again. I've had, I had my break, and I'm doing yeah, it. Okay. But I thought that would be something that would, uh, where my experiences were, were somewhat unique, um, being on the Intelligence Committee, the Judiciary Committee, and the Foreign Relations Committee when that happened. So it was all coming at me at once. And so this book was very well received. It got the good reviews and sold reasonably well, set you up in that fabulous mansion in the middle of <laughs> a couple blocks from where you are. But it did begin to position you, perhaps, and to say there's more, everybody should be very conscious of more going on. You went and taught at some great universities. You continue to do that. We got you on a break tonight from Stanford, is that right? Yeah, I came from uh, California for the weekend. Yeah. <laughs> And, but in the midst of that, you got a call from John Kerry. And, and I want you to tell us about that. Yeah. Uh, but before I do, I just want to, let's, let's go into it at the end rather than the start, because mm -hmm. we can take us back. But I, my favorite headline about you ever, outside of every one of the Cap Times, was, um, was in political in 2014, and it was, did Russ Feingold just end a war? The unlikely story of how the former Wisconsin senator made peace in Congo. And, and I remember when that came out, it was actually several publications had variations on it. And boy, did that put you in a different place, I think, in a lot of people's heads. Well, I remember I was in Brussels Airport at 5 o'clock in the morning when that, we first saw that. I was a little concerned about what might be written. And yes. Other than the articles you've written about me, which are unbelievably kind, uh, that was the best test. It's a pretty good article. That was a question mark at the end that I actually got in the war. You know, the reality was it was exaggerated. But you know, what it was about was um, what President Obama and Secretary Kerry asked me to do, which is to go over and try to work with other
other special envoys from the UN and the African Union and the European Union to do something about the horrific events that were continuing in Eastern Congo. Now, I think a lot of people think, well, are we talking about the Rwandan genocide? Well, it's very odd and ironic, but it occurred just after the Rwandan genocide, in part because of the dislocation of two million refugees from Rwanda into Eastern Congo. And in the course of 20 years, and it still continues in some ways, uh, you had six million people die, not through genocide, but through violence, Militias and starvation and just extreme poverty. Extreme poverty and all this, and actually, Eastern Congo, you'd you think it might be a more of a jungle setting or a desert setting. It looks like Wisconsin. It's good farmland uh, and very rich farmland, but and people are able to take care of themselves. But when you have 45 armed groups, when you have 6 million people being killed, 2 million women raped or sexually assaulted in some of the greatest violence against women in human history, and 500,000 boys, 12, 13-year-old boys being conscripted by these militias, uh, taken right from their families. All of this was going on. And I don't want to spend the whole night getting into all the details, but basically it was called uh, Africa's First World War. Because in the effort to get rid of Mobutu, who needed to be removed, a number of countries came in and got rid of it. But then they realized, oh, wait a minute, we're in Eastern Congo. There are more resources here than anywhere you can imagine. There's gold, there are diamonds, there's cobalt, there's tantalum, there's tin, all the things that go into the iPhones. It is the ultimate example of what uh, some of you scholars here would refer to as the resource curse. So these militaries were there, these militias were there, and they went, wait a minute. I don't think we're going to leave. I think we're going to set up shop here. I mean, for example, Uganda, which helped uh, liberate uh, Congo, uh, all of a sudden their gold experts exports shot up. They don't have any gold. <laughs> so um, this required uh, an international effort to stop the violence from getting really bad again. And the president, yeah, so I was sitting in my office at Stanford, and Kerry called up and said, we need you to go. And the reason they turned to me is that I was the most active member of the Senate on Africa, as I like to say, I became the expert in the Senate, which requires about a half hour, uh, because nobody was paying any attention to it. But I had spent 18 years uh, trying to understand things there. And there were three members of the committee um, who remembered that. One's name was Obama, one's name was Biden, and one's name was Kerry. So the three leading officials were like, we got too much to do, make fine we'll do this. And so they asked me. And it was from the Great Lakes region of Africa, which of course primarily that's obviously why you took it. Right name. I got a huge kick out of the idea that I was on the Great Lakes region of Africa and the Democratic Republic of Congo. In fact, you know, at various times in your life you have to get away from the political stuff, and I had to call my supporters. Uh, some supporters have said, look, I won't be able to do uh, partisan stuff uh, while I have this job. So I called up this head of the Democratic Party in Tennessee, a real progressive guy, and I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to be doing this now. And he said, well, I think this is great that you're doing this for the president. What are you going to be doing? Measuring lake levels in Lake Michigan? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a different great lake. 
Greeks. The other Greeks. Yeah. We, we actually did an initiative with some of the great environmentalists in this state, a woman named Susan Hedman and I, who was at the EPA. We actually had a conference about the health of lakes on Lake Tanganyika, which we called the Great Lakes to Great Lakes Conference, where we brought Canadians and Americans trying to have something positive about the region instead of just the, the tragedy. And one final thing before we go to the, the next step of this, which is um, you were over there uh, and you worked in, in this part of the world uh, somewhat parallel to another Wisconsinite, Mark Green. Yes. And this is Mark Green, a Republican who ran for governor, um, but ended up as, as making it a deep commitment to Africa as well. And it's sort of the fascinating thing that two Wisconsinites were trying to sort out a lot of problems. I have nothing but a praise for Mark Green. And my belief about Mark Green Congressman, or Lev was like, this guy's gonna run against me. <laughs> I, I had always for him. He used to be very critical of campaign finance reform, and you know the way life works sometimes is there I was as a U.S. Senator, and he's the ambassador for Bush to Tanzania. We took a trip for three days together around Tanzania, finding out about malaria prevention, little babies being weighed to see how they're doing, the nets that were given. And I saw a compassion um, of this guy, uh, which amazed me. And since then, he's been the head of a number of agencies. And in fact, now, uh, yes, we all have a, a very good reason to be very unhappy about the people Donald Trump appoints. This man is a very good director of the USAID. And, and uh, you know, maybe it's the Wisconsin blood. I don't know, but I'll tell you. Um, he has been an extremely honorable, uh, public servant uh, since his time in, in, in electoral politics. And I, I think the world I appreciate that. And somebody even tried to start applauding for a Republican, I know, a moment ago. And, and I will tell you that Mark Green actually deserves a, a loud round of applause because he was a tremendous, and is a tremendous figure. Um, let's, take us, let's take us into how this evolved into, in some ways, into what you're doing now. Because You'd had this deep tie to Africa. You, um, I think it's fair to say, always known as somebody who's sympathetic to the environment. You know, you try to find national parks and safe places. Around. But the interesting thing, you were approached at, at a certain point not that long ago uh, by a representative of a very wealthy person who wanted you to connect back with Africa, but also do work in the U.S. on the subject of biodiversity. Yeah, this is about something called campaign for nature. And um, actually, when I was in the Senate, I was well aware of who's here. Uh, I didn't consider podcasters. Theonosis. <laughs> <laughs> there you go.
if the guy taking care of the lions is a graduate student, you got to be mad. <laughs> the person that succeeded Diane Fossey, uh, Amy Vetter, is the successor, is a University of Wisconsin PhD. I'm not a favorite. You, you, can't, you can't escape Wisconsin when you're over there. I know. And, and the person who, one of the great people that just passed away from African Studies and the African Studies Department of the World Life, Crawford Young, mm -hmm. all of Africa knew who Crawford Young was. So uh, that's one acknowledgement. The other one is obviously growing up in Wisconsin in this tradition. Uh, the activism in this state on the environment has been legendary, and I'm so thrilled that there is a group that's come together of generally retired experts, scientists, environmentalists, and others. Green Fire, which is a great group, and Fred Clark is running, running it. Is here tonight, and so is my friend uh, Paul Heine, who is here as well. They are capable to help the environmental issues. When I say that Paul is my good friend, that's not Senate Paul. My good friend, you know. Oh, he actually is my good friend. <laughs> so, uh, uh, now back to your question. I, I no, no, I, there's, I, I remember the biggest insult I ever, the biggest insult I ever did. The thing that right, right, made you mad or anything I ever said to you. You've done something I didn't approve of. And I said, man, you're, you're, you're being more like Proxmire than Nelson. <laughs> and, and, and you are a Nelson guy. And you, well, I always thought the combination was sort of the perfect show. It is. But you, you had a great appreciation of Nelson. You had a great appreciation of the environmental mission and the subtleties of what Nelson worked on. And that gets us to go into the core of this biodiversity issue because I know that everybody in this room heard you just say biodiversity, but I'm not sure that everybody, I'll start with myself, I'm not sure everybody has a full sense of what we're talking about. Nor did I hear it. So the reason I was asked to do this is that a chief of staff to some United States senator uh, from New Mexico, uh, heard that I might know something about Rwanda, and they wanted to get uh, people supporting this effort to do something about the uh, mass extinction problem in the world. And so they said, I called up this Brian McDonald that we was running, and he happens to be one of the great environmental activists of the last 20 or 30 years, particularly the Western lands mm -hmm. in the United States. But I remembered him. Uh, and he said, you know, we'd like you to help on this, and it's about uh, the Crisis in Biodiversity. Uh, a book that's been written about this is called The Sixth Extinction. If you want to read a great book by Elizabeth Gilbert, it's disturbing, but it's marvelous. It talks about the sixth extinction of the planet. And this is the one we're doing. It's called the Anthropocene. And the scientists have indicated in a report that came out in May that up to a million species uh, face extinction. Let's pause in the near future. But let's pause. A million species face extinction in the near future. What does that what does near future mean? Forty to fifty years? So many lifetimes of people in this room. Yes. And 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 some people laugh, but we're all living very long lives. <laughs> and and the this is this I'm going, right? We've already lost an immense number of species. I think when we were watching Australia, you were hearing about this incredible, just the fires that's going on here. But this isn't about a, a single incident. This is global. It is global. Uh, in North America, 
One report says that 30% of all the birds in North America are gone since I was at Jamesville Craigslist. 30%. In England and in studies there, which I guess is the most studied country in the world for insects for some reason, 30% um, of all insects since 1970. Uh, there is, of course, people well aware of tremendous deforestation, overfishing, the type of agriculture such as palm oil agriculture that clears areas like the clear cutting we had here in Wisconsin uh, in the 19th century that wipes out just about everything else to the point where pollination doesn't work anymore. And so they say it's a crisis. And what the scientists say is that we've got to do something to preserve at least 30% of the land and the water on the planet by 2030. And what they also say is we may have to preserve 50% of the land and water by 2050. Help people understand what you mean by preserve. <laughs> well, either restore areas that have been harmed, such as uh, overfish uh, areas such as that, preserving uh, forests, you know, the kind of thing that is the reverse of which is happening in Brazil. Congo, of course, is a tremendous example. It is the Congo, the great forest of Congo are known as the second lung of the planet after the Amazon. Uh, and so the deforestation, literally just cutting down trees where often it's agriculture and pigeons. So one thing I just want to be clear about is this uh, crisis is caused by at least five different factors and it is directly related to the climate issue but it is not the same. There are five major causes of the loss of planetary diversity. Number one is simply use of the land, you know, whether it's fisheries or agriculture. It's often agriculture on the edge of natural areas. The, the second greatest cause is the direct exploitation of species, what we call here in Wisconsin fishing and hunting, cutting down trees. The third most is climate change. And some say that it will become the most important. The fourth is the one that Gaylord Nelson all. We only talked about this one back in the 60s and 70s, pollution. And then the fifth is invasive species. So we know about this. I've already mentioned one great book. Another one is called The Death and Life of the Great Lakes. It was chosen by the University of Wisconsin as the book of the year. Um, where it talks about that I had no idea I thought the St. Lawrence Seaway had always been there. <laughs> it was created in the 50s, and that is how all these invasive species from the oceans came in and have threatened enormously uh, our Great Lakes. And so uh, there's different examples of this. There's zebra mussels, Asian carp over in the Great Lakes of Africa, the water hyacinth, you know, these are pretty plants. Let's put these in the water, and it eats up everything else. But you know, I, the thing that bothers me about this topic is we're already scaring the living daylights out of people about climate change. Well, and then we go, okay, and now we have this enormous crisis of biodiversity too, and they're different, but they're related. And, and you see, that's exactly where I want to get because because we're having a really hard time getting people jump started on climate, right? And then here comes Russ Michael, always wrecking every person. Because uh, it's like, oh yeah, you think you got a problem there. Well, half a million species are going to be gone next week. And, and 
this on. Uh, being, you are not, it's, it's this like, really long title, like ambassador of the campaign for nature. You know, and, all, and, and it's really a big deal. He is talking to uh, former members and current members of the House and the Senate here in the U.S., really trying to educate, working with people in Africa, working with people all over the world. This is a, a giant effort of which he is a part. And, but it also is so daunting. And when you first started describing this to me, I was thinking, you know what? I almost don't want to know. Yeah. I almost, I almost don't want to know. That's well, you know, and this is where, uh, in some ways, this topic, as difficult as it is, it is, it is maybe easier for people to think about it in a positive way. Because much of this can be repaired. Uh, in maritime areas can be repaired. Uh, an area can be rewilded. It's being done in many places around this country and around the world. So if it's not, if you don't wait until it's too late, where it's simply not going to work anymore, it can be repaired. And the two things work hand in hand. Let me give one example of each. So uh, the Congolese forest image. If you lose that forest, the impact in terms of being a sink for CO2 uh, in terms of climate change is enormous. So that's an example of the loss of biodiversity causing a greater climate crisis. A reverse example of coral reefs. We think, well, coral reefs, this is a beautiful part of nature, but the I believe it's algae that are on the coral. That's what gives them the color. And uh, it's a symbiotic relationship. But the water is warmed up to them. And the algae is dying. So the coral uh, kicks off the algae and becomes white and bleached and ultimately dies. So I guess the way to look at it is instead of it being two incredibly depressing separate things, which one do I work on? They are so closely related that almost every leader on this in the world says this has to be approached as one problem with two facets. And climate and yes. and, and in fact, this is just so that people can point to what's going to happen next. If you're well aware of climate uh, agreement from Rio, there was another major agreement made there called the Convention on Biodiversity. And in Kunming, China, in October, this is when this work, this phase of this work will end. In Kunming, China, uh, this October, there will be an attempt to get all the countries of the world to sign on to this 30 by 30 percent by 30 agreement. So it should be what we want it to look like is the Paris Climate Accord, and it is completely consistent with what was done uh, with that uh, treaty over the last few decades. So it's got a very specific target uh, for a 10-year plan to try to deal. And, and people ought to be tuning into this right now. They can follow. They can follow this. They can go to uh, Campaign for Nature's website. Yes, but also the uh, the Convention on Biodiversity uh, has its own secretariat in Montreal. Every country in the world is required uh, to submit a report, which you can look up online, and you can see what that country's uh, report is. There's just one point here that. Point out to you on another occasion. There's only one country in the world of any size that's not a member of the treaty. <laughs> I sat there on the Foreign Relations Committee, and this is before Trump, this is before the Tea Party, Jesse Helms and that crew, who said, We're not going to have any more treaties. These are world, world domination. No treaty for the rights of the child, no law of the sea, and no biodiversity. So 
it's a nice thing that some of us Americans can actually work on this cause, even though our country is at this point not a party to it. And I'd be honest with you, one of the things I'm trying to do, which I have failed to do, is I have begged all the moderators in all these debates to ask the Democratic candidates, will you appoint uh, an office of biodiversity in the White House, like the climate, and will you reintroduce the treaty uh, to, for ratification by the United States? But as citizens, we all can help with this, even though, sadly, our country has the embarrassing distinction of not being part of this. Russ Feinkel, you sly dog, you brought us to the subject of politics. No. <laughs>
zinged right through the socialism thing. Um, well, no, actually, I was just going to say, um, isn't it cool that the Democratic National Convention is going to be held this year in a city that was run for 50 years in the last year? This podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences. Join the Madison-based team working to lead earlier cancer detection. Visit exactsciences.com to view the company's hundreds of open jobs. Let's keep going down this political lane for a little bit more. A couple, couple more questions. I'm interested in, you yourself thought about running for president in the 2000s. Pondered it, even if you took a trip to Alabama to Sure, the level of support you had there. No, that was not the <laughs> <laughs> It ended up being. Okay. But you pondered right for the presidency. Ultimately, why didn't you run? I never really wanted to. Uh, I, I know it sounds weird, but I always thought to be a United States Senator was sort of the, the end of my ambition politically. I, I know that sounds like you think everybody who gets in politics always wants to be the person who ends up talking the whole thing. I never really fancied myself in that role. Um, I did, I was convinced by some very good staff members to uh, just go to Iowa and see what it's like. Let's just go to New Hampshire and see what it's like. And to be honest with you, the response was incredible. It was, yeah. Uh, because, not because anybody knew who I was when they saw me. I walked in the room and they go, Russ Michaels here, everybody started cheering and looking around. Right here. <laughs> but, but they knew that I had led the fight against the Iraq War. They knew I was the only person that voted against the USA Patriot Act. And those were the things that. It's just one of those moments in life you have to figure out who you are. And I realized that if I did that, all the people that I'm close to, my family, my wife, everybody, it just, it would just consume it. And you know, I'll be honest with you, I wasn't willing to make that sacrifice because I cared too much about uh, the people around me and I, I just didn't think it would be a good idea. On the other hand, running mate, why not? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're still on for vice president. Yeah. Um, but that, that does get us to the same. Let's imagine for a second that you did. If you were running for president now, and with the, the good respect you've already paid to two of the candidates, and the regard I think you have for Joe Biden, who's someone you've known for a long time, and many other folks. If you were running right now, what would what would you be doing that's different than the ones who are running? Well, I'll tell you, I have a hard time criticizing what Bernie's doing right now. Because, look, after 
after the 2016 election, there was an enormous amount of conversation in academic circles and otherwise, you know, what happened? You know, why did we lose? What should we do? Should we try to persuade the people that uh, voted for Obama and then voted for Trump? Should we try to get them back? Or should we try to broaden out the, the number of people from uh, diverse communities who would vote? And my belief is that it should be the latter. Yes, of course, you should try to convince people who voted for Trump. But, you know, I have a little trouble understanding people who voted for Trump. <laughs> <laughs> and there are so many young people from diverse backgrounds and others who, if they feel that the political process is open to them, uh, they will vote. And I believe that Bernie Sanders is potentially creating a miracle here of turnout that we go in that direction. So I, he's been consistent with his, his viewpoints. He's not playing games. Uh, and I, I, it's the oddest thing, because you know, I did serve with Bernie, and he was not the most fun guy. <laughs> <laughs> Ever since this heart attack, he seems very loose. You <laughs> see him dancing, you see him laughing, you see him saying, you know, try to keep up with me. I might be older. So, in terms of your, your uh, question about running for president, uh, one thing I, I have said is, you know, 10 years from now, I'll be about the right age, Quite a few here. 
Uh, last thing I want to ask though is, and it, it was actually one of the questions that somebody had me even before we began, and this is roughly the first question, I'll just paraphrase. And it is, is it heartbreaking to you to be looking at a campaign in which um, this next week we'll have a Democratic debate where two billionaires will fought their way out to the stage. And where um, we just see, I mean, I, I know with due respect to what Bernie's done with small donations, and, but, but so much of the work you did on campaign finance reform uh, really seems to, in many ways, blow up in these recent years. Yeah, it is in a way heartbreaking, and I am not one of those who can easily come along with this idea that you hear out the Silicon Valley, which is, uh, yeah, you know, yes, the right has all this money, but we have a lot of money uh, out here, too. It doesn't go easily with who I am, because I fundamentally believe if one person can put that much money into their own campaign or give it to somebody else, it's fundamentally and inherently corrupting. And so... Uh, but it is, it is disheartening. Now, here's the weird thing about it that people don't realize. And, and it has to do with the difference between the law and, and, and norms and what, the way in which people don't do things even though they can. It has been legal for people to spend all their own money on campaigns forever. There was no law against it. The Tillman Act that was struck down in Citizens United prohibited corporations from giving unlimited contributions. And individuals have been able forever to spend all they want on so-called independent ads, individual money. People didn't do it until Citizens United. Mm -hmm. Citizens United said, well, corporations can do it. All of a sudden, everybody felt that there was no problem. Well, that's the way it is with money now. So this needs to change. And the fact is, what Obama did to some extent, and Bernie even to a greater extent, I have no problem with lots of money being spent on campaigns, okay? I believe in information. Give the people the truth and the freedom to discuss it. But it's how it's raised. When the average time, if you raise $100 million in $10 contribution, they'd say, you're a pretty good candidate. Spend it. That's right, spend it. There's nothing wrong with that. What is wrong is when one person can take all their own money or some independent person can spend all their money to distort the political process that gives them a much greater voice. A million dollars of $10 contribution sounds like electronic democracy to me. It doesn't sound like something bad. So that's the money is not by itself an evil because it actually helps people communicate. But when it reflects the ability to have a stranglehold of the political process and cut the average person out of the process, that's a different story. What do you think about Bloomberg and what he's done? Well, I do know from people in New York that they consider him to be a very, very good mayor. On many human issues, I have no doubt that he would be a good president, uh, but I am very troubled by the things that he was unable to respond to like in the debate the response about those non-disclosure about the things he'd said to various women was just uh, horrible. <coughs> And I would have thought that he would have been better at it, uh, given the fact that he kind of knew it was coming. Uh, so that, that really concerned me. And uh, But I don't think he's going to be a, a viable candidate. But you know, if, 
if he ends up being one um, and he gets the nomination, I'll I will work hard for him. And speaking of billionaires and politics, uh, you know Wisconsin like this well. <laughs> and and for the younger people in the crowd, why are we doing this? The whole campaign gimmick of Russ Feingold. Wisconsin likes him. Where, where in there did, did Donald Trump come through and win the state? Um, first, he got numbers here. A ring of fire. Fredders know what I'm talking about. A ring of fire, the counties around Milwaukee. Where we thought he wouldn't do very well because remember what happened to him in Wisconsin? He got clobbered by Ted Bruce because the establishment, Scott Walker and others say, don't vote for this guy. But they hated Hillary Clinton so much uh, that they were able to get those numbers. That was half the battle. The other part was here. The part of the state that I love the most. As much as I love Madison and Dane County. The North, in a lot of those counties were, you know, let's say we would have more lost counties, 55, 45, maybe 60, 40. The bottom fell and all of a sudden we're losing by enormous numbers. And um, I have a lot of different theories that I'm not, not going to go into tonight about what might have happened up there, whether it's through the internet or whatever. It's, it's a very odd, a well, the theories, what, what it was that persuaded people to suddenly take a whole different view, and we know about the Facebook ads and other things that we, we were not aware of. Um, you know, there's actually five counties over in western Wisconsin that Trump carried and I carried, which was very unusual. But up north, this didn't happen. There was a, I'm not sure, and the same thing in the Foxwood Valley. So it was an unusual thing that did not track, you know, you, you know the usual deal is. Yeah. Milwaukee County and Dane County versus the Ring of Fire, that's usually even, and then it's decided by the rest. The bottom fell out in, in those places, and it was at the very last second, not exactly sure why. Did it tell us something big about Wisconsin or something small about Wisconsin that Trump couldn't say? I'm not sure. I don't think we know yet. 2018 results in Wisconsin were fabulous. Of course, we got completely ripped off in the legislature because of malapportionment. But overall, the state just took control and said, wait a minute. We're not going to allow this anymore. But I, I can't tell you whether people will come to their senses and just quietly, maybe never admit they voted for Trump and just, you know, make up for the error. Uh, or, or it's somehow because of issues of, of identity and, and some of the other issues that people have locked in and that being for Trump possibly has become a cultural issue for some people. And if that's true, we're going to have a hard time getting those Did Democrats screw up in some sort of, got going to take pieces from questions here. Did Democrats screw up in some fundamental way that made Trump possible? I think it was a factor which you and I uh, have agreed on over the years. The way in which the Democratic Party, uh, Clinton and Gore and others, uh, DLC, Decided it was a good idea to support trade agreements and ship our jobs overseas was a terrible mistake. Uh, we 
course, I opposed NAFTA and gathered all those agreements, even though the Democratic president wanted us to support them. You know, the globalization was the, the, the thing at the time. Tom Friedman was actually the guy I know and I like, but he said, you know, you're never going to have have a war between a country, two countries that have McDonald's. This was one of the, because of globalization. Tell that to the people in Serbia when we bought their uh, McDonald's. Uh, so this whole mantra, as you know, was a part of it. And it fed into a view, even when sometimes jobs came back, that the urban and elite areas in Washington didn't care about the jobs and the working lives of Wisconsinites. And I felt this especially with my friends in the labor movement, who kept getting crushed over and over again, particularly the industrial unions, over and over again, uh, in a way that, you know, ultimately people no longer believe the Democrats would solve this problem. They passed more trade agreements. And they were ready for what what sometimes called the man and the horse. Mm -hmm. The man that comes in and says, I will stand for steel and I will stand for your jobs. And of course, uh, Trump played that card brilliantly. I don't think it was the only factor, but I do think it was a factor. A lot of questions from people. Uh, the certain intersections as regards your service on the Intelligence Committee. And uh, the Foreign meddling in elections and the the seeming about three different questions have come from this the seeming failure of Congress to take this seriously and I'm interested to talk about that a little bit give us a sense of it. well of course this direct fear of meddling in elections did not arise when I was in the Senate since then but I do remember after the uh, hanging chads Senator Dianne Feinstein was trying to do something about some of these issues, about voting machines and others. And, you know, I had my full list of things, and to be honest with you, I thought, well, you know, this is something they can work out. I didn't understand. I didn't have the technical ability to really comprehend that. And I guess I didn't think anything like this could happen. I admit it. I just didn't understand um, the threat. But she was ahead of the curve. Uh, and was trying to do something about it. And now, when I allude to you know things that, that may have happened in 2016, um, the state of Virginia, after the 2016 election, had a meeting of their board of elector, of their all their ele of elector people in the state, all the voting people. The election commission. You know, the election commission. Yeah. And, and they had some hackers come. And they said, show us what you can do. And they showed them how they could manipulate the votes. And they went to paper <laughs> So it's not, you know, it's, it's a problem both with, you know, the, the machines maybe weren't working right, also the, the hand valves weren't working right. Yes, it's a, and apparently we are still in a great deal of trouble. A great deal of trouble. <coughs> um, number of questions uh, coming from different perspectives on this. Uh, when you served in the legislature and in the, uh, in the Senate, in Wisconsin, we have the positive competence. I mean, it comes out of some of these groups. And so we, we've had, always had a right, and, and an extreme right. Um, but does it frighten you now or concern you now more that this seems to be, there does seem to be more of an extreme presence? Um, and give us a sense of it. Well, I don't think there's quite no question, I don't think there's any question that it's much more serious. I remember when I was running for the state senate in 1982. Yeah, times the worst for me against Everett. Against Everett, it was a progressive. Not a bad guy. He was 
remember the person from it uh, before. Oh, but he, uh, so, you know, I, 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 you know, he was 83. I was 20, uh, 29. Uh, he was expected to win. He was a big Republican minister. But I decided to knock, I left my job and knocked on 15,000 doors, including in Poignac, Wisconsin. And I remember going down to the street and a couple of the houses had these big plastic comatitis plaques in the left. And I was about to knock on the door and it said, survivors will be prosecuted. <laughs>
somebody tweeted the other day, exactly when do people finally take to the streets again? Yeah. What happened to that? Yeah. What happened to protest? I was telling uh, my great nephews here at dinner at the Blue Moon that, you know, I was tear gassed a few blocks from here. <laughs> Quite a few times. Uh, you know, a war with pride. I mean, why is it that we no longer protest? Lord knows there's enough to protest. And actually, in a number of countries around the world, we're seeing mass movements that actually make change. More us. Just look at the. Uh, it's a good one. And, and uh, there's a. I have to say, uh, Capcom's questioners are brilliant. And, and going on a lot of different territory. Um, and I've saved up, by the way, a group for finishing off um, because you actually got a tremendous number of people talking about biodiversity. And so you, we've got a few that will finish off here. But before we get there, um, you, this is an interesting thing. It goes back to something that you talked about in your book and talked about in the past. Um, we are at a point now where the United States seems to be pulling in in many ways, under President Trump, withdrawing from international agreements, um, really withdrawing from a lot of relations with the rest of the world. And it's also a time when China has been incredibly aggressive, especially in Africa, and but also in South America and other places, and being that, that international country. Now, right now, obviously, a tremendous challenge with the coronavirus and that. But, but at a fundamental level, China has spent the last 20 years kind of building out into the world. Is that, how do we think about that and how, how should we be thinking about that? Well, a great example of that is what we've already talked about. We're not a party to the Campaign for Nature. Who's sponsoring the conference? China. And they're not angels on these issues, but they understand what world leadership means. And um, <laughs> when I've worked in Africa over the years, um, I can tell you that Many of the sub-Saharan African countries are still very positive toward Americans in the United States. But I remember saying to the uh, foreign uh, minister of Rwanda, Louise Mushikwabo, is one of the most impressive people I've ever worked with. She said, we really appreciate what you're doing, what President Obama's doing, but you're not here. The United States isn't really here. We're not really present in a lot of these places. And, and yet, there are countries all over Southeast Asia, all over Africa, Europe is crying for something different from us. And Europe, even though they've taken this horrible blow with Brexit, Europe is still a tremendous contribution to a progressive world. Their policies, their human policies, human rights issues, and others are a tremendous achievement of the last 40 or 50 years. So we need an administration and a, and a Congress that sees us as part of their work. But in the end, to answer your question, the greatest challenge, uh, not so much of those of us who are over 60, uh, the greatest challenge for those under 60 will be probably our relationship with China. What is it going to be? What are their motives? What are our motives? Uh, do we assume that they're trying to dominate the world, or do they want to uh, have a relationship that is mutually beneficial? Uh, but we have to figure out the answer to that. And we have to have a real strategy uh, for interfacing with China. Uh, I think we look like we don't have a clue right now. Which 
brings us to a related question, I guess. Uh, other than Mark Green, are there any positive appointments by President Trump? That's <laughs> <laughs> a question. No, but I, it, it, especially you know, ambassadors and, and it, it, I'll tell you a huge disappointment because because I thought otherwise. It appeared to me that Ambassador Nikki Haley, who was the ambassador of the United Nations, according to my former Democratic colleagues and others, was doing a good job at the UN. What in the world she's thinking now with the horrible things she said? Uh, apparently, this is what you have to do to get elected in South Carolina. But I'm 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 really unhappy about that because I thought that she might end up being somebody credible, uh, but I think she's destroyed her credibility with that. And the same thing goes, it's not really a question, I'm talking about people that are disappointed. What in the world ever happened to Lindsey Graham? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's pause on the other side. In South Carolina, again, uh, you know, you served with him. We, we traveled together with McCain and, uh, to Iraq and Afghanistan. And he was one of our original co-sponsors of McCain-Feingold. He would work with us when they would try to do tax cuts that weren't paid for. He was, I remember being over in uh, Waukesha County, a very, very difficult listening session, where I was trying to defend myself, and I said, uh, look, Lindsey Graham is doing a climate change deal with John Kerry. And they all started screaming, he's a rhino, a Republican in name only. And so, you know, here's the thing. Yes, it was wonderful to be a United States Senator. It was a great thrill. But it wasn't so great that you would literally do anything or say anything to avoid some kind of a primary from the right. This I don't understand. You know, I think this regularly said anything to, that would get you in trouble. I mean, you, the truth of the matter is you frequently as a senator did things that were supposed to be dangerous. Or well, it, was, to be, it was fun. It was exciting. <laughs> <laughs> there were a couple factors to it, though. Yeah. Which is, I, at least then, I believed fiercely in Wisconsin's spirit of independence. And the people I admired from Wisconsin were those who had been independent. I mean, fighting Bob followed me a great example. And I knew I was on the right track politically when we finally came to the 2004 election. And I won 27 counties that Bush won that night. And a couple of people came up and he said, you know why I voted for you? He said, I'm a Republican. He says, we never know what you're going to do. <laughs> Which, you know, sounds weird. But that's, they don't want to think that everything's already decided. That there's no opportunity. So even though they might have thought I was a little wacky, they realized that I wasn't taking it. And, and so that, that's kind of just, a lot of that's disappeared, especially after the I fear it. Yeah. yeah. And even the same thing with being a state senator or a state representative, great job. But is it so great that you hand your voting card to somebody? And you say, oh, here, just tell me what to do. <clears throat> it's ridiculous. Why, why run for office? Did Scott Walker break it all? Or? <laughs> he didn't help. <laughs> Well, that was a very unusual state. That's something that I hope all people remember. You know, 2010 was a really rough night, obviously, that I lost. We lost the Congress and the House and so on. But nobody knew what was coming. Nobody knew that this Act 10 was coming. Nobody knew that all this crazy voting inhibition stuff was coming. 
There was a whole agenda prepared by the right, by the Koch brothers and others that, you know, you know, it was a normal Wisconsin election where, you know, they decided to change. But this violent uh, approach to uh, division and uh, disregarding all the norms and traditions of the state really, I think, was a surprise. And it also, it had fundamental impact, right? Oh, the no. gerrymandering, the Active. structural changes. Do we get back from that? Do, is it possible that, so, I mean, the Wisconsin that you came up in politically was a place where you could spend a ridiculously small amount of money, knock a lot of doors, and get elected to the legislature. Um, or where some goofy guy could get in a Democratic primary, wait for the two front runners to destroy themselves, and become a U.S. Senator.
service in that way? Always open to public service, and you've got a Supreme Court seat to hand me. You're a miracle worker, but the answer is yes. You would do it. Yeah, okay. We might have some news here. Captain David, they were waiting. Let's close up. I promised that we would circle around to uh, a couple questions on um, the work you're doing on biodiversity, which is. Um, is so important. And, and I think it's actually a great question. Someone said, look, I didn't know much about this before tonight. Um, uh, I'm really, I, I like what I've heard you say. What should I do now? Well, the first thing is just to get a little more background on it. Read, read the Six Extinction. Read the report from the UN from May, not the whole report, but the summary of the report from May 6th about this crisis. And then uh, start advocating, uh, just like people have done in climate change. Uh, I would say, you know, sort of this idea they're doing with climate. Every Friday, some kind of a protest or a gathering at, uh, at public settings. So the people started asking, what's this about? In England, they have something called the Extinction Rebellion. That some people, you know, it relates to climate, but it also relates to this. And some people think it's too radical of a group, but they're blocking traffic. Yes, and they shut the city down. You start shutting down the tube, people get mad at you over there. But um, I would say, just like the climate issue, where it has been successful, that, that kind of activism you know, causes people to say, okay, what's this about? And, and somehow, one of the things we're trying to do is create sort of a steering committee of sort of former foreign ministers, former world leaders. Who will try to take this issue out of the wonderful context of the environmentalists and scientists and try to get it to a broader populace uh, understanding of what this is. It, as important as it is to obviously make sure we don't lose the gorillas in Africa, there is much more to it. It's, you know, it involves peatlands, preserving peatlands in, in places around the planet. And, you know, some of it might seem kind of wonky. On the other hand, um, it's interesting. And I think particularly young people will find it interesting. So learn enough about it, as I had to do, and I'm, just, I'm certainly not an expert, so that you can just kind of talk to people and try to urge them to take some uh, you know, pop, popular action to try to heighten the issue. Um, how does it, what you're talking about with this, obviously, climate is a different issue, but there is a proposal for the Green New Deal. Do you like the Green New Deal as a proposal? And is it possible that there might be a biodiversity new deal or some other? Can can you relate these things or possibly? Take I mean, it, it's it's a little different kind of issue in terms of regulation, which of course is the big fear of uh, the green new deal and the too much regulation in business. In fact, one of the things that I'm on guard about is some people at Davos and some of these other things are talking about. Well, Let's really focus on the biodiversity thing and we don't have to deal with the climate. Which I, I can kind of see what's going on there. Because you're not going to ask so much of industry uh, and polluters and others. So that's why you have to be on guard about not letting that sort of thing be done. Uh, Tom Udall has co-sponsored a 30 by 30 bill for the United States. We are not there. It will not be easy to get there. But there is a domestic legislation. Uh, that I would think would be considered similar uh, to the Green New Deal in terms of an agenda of a new president who would be pro environmental. Here's a, a, a tough one. 
Um, how can there be any real restoration of natural areas when we have such a explosive growth in the human population of the planet? And how do we reconcile this? A great example of this is Uganda, which, you know, generally speaking, is a country where there is enough food. It's, it's, it's a, not a, a place that has great food security problems like uh, Burundi, for example, which is should be rich with resources and has been destroyed in that regard. But this is the tipping point issue, is that as the forests and the natural areas of Uganda are impinged upon by agriculture and population, there comes a point where there isn't enough food, that there isn't enough pollination, that there isn't enough ability to restore, to actually provide the food. So one of the things that Robert Watson, who's one of the leading scientists in the world on biodiversity, is trying to emphasize, is the economic impact uh, on countries that are trying to develop of not preserving their biodiversity. Look, you can't ask Uganda and Rwanda to pay for all this. They don't have the money. That money has to come from developed countries, wealthy individuals, from foundations, but we have to give them, help them have the wherewithal to deal with this. So in Rwanda, they're doing a great job, and they're trying to uh, reforest some areas. But I went and visited with their forestry minister, and he said, Mr. Feinberg, this is great. We uh, commit to the 30 by 30, but we don't have any forestry. We don't have anybody that's trained in forestry. I know how close I am here to yeah. one of the great centers in the world forestry. And I realized the world has to help them fund a, a university program and train so that they can have It's not enough to say, okay, this is a natural national park or this is a forest. It has to be maintained. And it has to be maintained by skilled people from those countries. And so it's that combination of things that it's in their interest to do this economically and to feed people. Uh, and in fact, if they don't do this, they will no longer be able to feed people. You loved being a U.S. Senator. And you then wrote a successful book and went into academia and have got all the offers that you go to Harvard, you can go to Stanford. You get, you get, there's plenty of planes that will take you different places. And yet you've taken on this new, this task. What is it about you that makes you want to, at, at this, age, this point in your life, take on something that absolutely will not be finished, probably in your lifetime? Why, why do it? What is the, what's the motivation? What's, what is it about you that makes you do that? It's a privilege to It's fun. Obviously, you want to feel like you're dealing with things that matter. And when you grow up, um, you know, reading about it and idealizing people like you're idolizing people like Bob LaFollette or Bobby Kennedy or whatever, you realize they did these things knowing darn well these, these problems wouldn't all be solved, you know, uh, by your lifetime. In fact, uh, one of the things I have in common with Gaylord is that uh, he, uh, he claims that. Uh, that he was taken to see fighting Bob LaFolle. And he came back, and he was like 10, 11 years old, and he came back and he said to his dad, something to the effect of, uh, you know, 
I may want to do something like that, but it looks like Mr. LaFollette's going to take care of everything. <laughs> Unbeknownst to me, when I was a little kid in Janesville, and my dad told me that we had the best two senators in the country, Broxmire and Nelson, uh, and I sort of said to him, well, you know, I want to be a senator, but I said the same thing, which is, will there be anything left to do? Uh, I'm not worried about it. <laughs> so it'll be plenty Help. I mean, something like the biodiversity issue, the climate issue. We're talking 100 years, 200 years of human endeavor to make sure that we can solve this problem, maybe. And um, you know, there's a lot of young people that are ready to take this on. We're very lucky you've been willing to take on so many things. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a round of applause. This podcast has been brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Once again, be sure to learn more at exactsciences.com. <laughs>